Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. One billion people around the world live without access to electricity, and well over a third of the global population still relies on wood to cook their food. The lack of access to reliable and clean energy is a major barrier to improving human health and to driving economic growth in the world's poorest areas. In response to this challenge, the United Nations has set the goal of spreading access to electricity to every corner of the globe within little more than a decade. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with one of the people tasked with spearheading the UN's effort about the challenge of delivering universal access to electricity while at the same time reducing carbon emissions and the climate impact that growing energy use can bring. We'll also take a look at the challenge to financing energy development on a global scale. Rachel Kite is Chief Executive Officer and Special Representative of the UN Secretary General for Sustainable Energy for All, an organization focused on achieving the UN's energy development goal. She is also co-chair of UN Energy. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. I wonder if you could start us out by talking about Sustainable Development for All and its goal of universal energy access. So the goal of universal energy access is one part of a goal around sustainable energy, which is one goal of 17 in the sustainable development goals. And sustainable energy for all started as a movement actually before the goals were agreed in 2015 in response to a question by the then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who said, you know, why, why is energy not a big development issue for the UN? I mean, the UN works on nuclear proliferation, works on uh, nuclear energy technology, etc. But um, it wasn't a, a big development issue. <clears throat> and he, as a young man, had grown up in Korea without access to a reliable electricity and so just didn't understand how you could promote sustainable development without energy. A group of people were brought together, private sector leaders, government leaders, and they basically came up with the idea of sustainable energy for all, that we should have universal access, that we should at least double um, the amount of renewable energy in the mix and that we would need to double, and I think now with time gone by, you know, triple uh, the rate of improvement of energy efficiency within the global economy. So we're a little platform whose job it is to help everybody else be their best selves so that we can achieve this uh, goal. You have a number of roles from chief executive for SE for All mm-hmm. to co-chair of UN Energy. What's involved in, in your work specifically? Well, as the special representative of the Secretary General, my job is to make sure that he and his senior team, including the Deputy Secretary General, have uh, a sense of the pathway towards achievement of the goals. And, of course, the goals have to be achieved in the context of the Paris Climate Agreement, which means that we are in a process of decarbonising the economy. So we have to achieve these goals while decarbonising the economy. So my job is to make sure that he is aware of the best thinking and the sort of where the consensus is or where an emerging consensus is about how do you get to these goals? What is the critical path to achieving these goals? As the co-chair of UN Energy, my other co-chair is Achim Steiner, the administrator of the UN Development Programme. Um, UNDP, what we do is try to make sure that the UN's offering to member states that is, is one which helps them move through the energy transition quickly and that um, many, many parts of the UN system are working on energy. WHO is working on energy and health. UNHCR is working on refugees and their access to electricity. Um, I could go on. So how does the whole be more than the sum of the parts? And then as CEO... 
I'm responsible for a team of about 40 people, most living in Vienna, Austria, some living in DC, and we have a presence in New York. And our job is to provide a sandbox or a platform for people to come together and work on achieving those goals. So we are marshalling the evidence, we're benchmarking progress, we're telling the stories of what works and what doesn't work, and we're amplifying the voices of those who don't get heard in the conversation. Let's take a, a, a big picture look at the challenge here for just a moment. Again, mm-hmm. SC for All is working on goal number seven of yeah. the sustainable development goals. That's affordable and clean energy. And right now, about a billion people around the world don't have access to electricity. From your experience, what are the costs in human terms of not having electricity access? Well, you know, sitting in this uh, gorgeous studio on this gorgeous campus on a nice spring day um, in in Philadelphia, we we take energy for granted. So we take for granted the lights, we take for granted the heating, the cooling, we take for granted, uh, you know, the the breakfast that I've just eaten and how it was prepared. Um, And... You know, if you take if you take electricity away, if you take heating and cooling away uh, from energy, if you take away the ability to cook cleanly, then you you know you can't guarantee a health outcome when you go to a health facility. If you can get to the health facility, you can't guarantee a good education outcome if your child is studying in a school where it's so cold that you can't concentrate. You uh, can't guarantee that you're going to be able to get a business up and running and then run it successfully if the electricity is going out 27 times a day or if you don't have any in the first place. And so it is the lifeblood. It is what we the UN has called the golden thread to the other development goals that we have as an international community. So without that electricity, without uh, other forms of energy, Energy. It's difficult to imagine how we can progress the way that we want to. Again, the focus is also very much environmental. Uh, is there an environmental impact of not having access to electricity? Yes, there is. But I would say that it's really um, it's it's an economic, social, and environmental conundrum. Right? How to get access to the pe- to the people who don't have it today? The environmental impact, in particular, in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, where where people are relying on wood, charcoal, and biomass of other kinds for cooking, is that the pressure of you know, uh, hundreds of millions of sub-Saharan Africans who still today don't have access to clean fuels for cooking means that that is a pressure on deforestation at a time when we need to be aforesting and reforesting the world as we try to put the planet back in balance with the economy, you know, as a result of climate change. So uh, that's one very considerable environmental uh, cost. The other is related to air quality. The fossil fuels that we've been burning in our centralised energy systems up to now are responsible for the uh, appalling air quality that many people suffer in cities around the world. And we now know, and we will know even more by the end of this year from the continuing research that is being published about what that poor air quality is doing to people's uh, lifespans, what it's doing to the mental capacity and the ability to learn of young people. And so I think you know, when people go to the ballot box, they are worried about clean air, perhaps more than they're worried about access to electricity or they're worried about the price of the electricity bill rather than the access to electricity. But um, I think people are very concerned, parents are very concerned about their children's health. And that's why you see um, so much pressure, I think, now on, on the energy industry. So in talking about sustainable solutions, mm-hmm. sustainable being the key issue here, that are most promising for electrification and for cooking, mm-hmm. Are we talking simply about 
renewable energy for electrification? And are we talking about simply replacing biomass with, for example, gas stoves for cooking? Well, I think when it comes to electrification, um, we are we are talking about decarbonizing uh, the electricity systems. We are talking about a massive, uh, uh, you know, effort to exploit the renewable energy technologies which are now available to us. Um, and we are talking about doing that as quickly as possible. Um, I think one of the theories of change around the Paris Climate Agreement and the need to get to sort of well below two degrees of warming, as well as to achieve the Sustainable Development Goal, is that we can, if we can electrify everything and make sure electricity is clean, that gets us through all kinds of problems. And you start, you, you see that we're reaching tipping points now uh, when it comes to electric vehicles, I mean, mainly cars, but that will spread to buses and trucks very soon. We're seeing very, uh, you know, important milestones being broken in electric aviation, electric shipping, etc. Right. So electrify everything that you can and, and clean up the electricity mix. There are some things which are really difficult, you know, the sort of heating that we all need in the northern hemisphere. Um, and we are working out how to do that while decarbonizing. These are some of the you know, big pieces of work that continue to need to be done. So uh, there was an important piece of work done last year by the Energy Transitions Commission looking at the hard-to-abate parts of the economy. So steel, how you make steel with no carbon, how do you make cement with no carbon, how do you, uh, you know, have container ships moving across the Atlantic with no carbon, how do you do long-haul aviation without carbon. So there are some pieces of this which need a lot of work still, but technically it's feasible by mid-century, so we've got a lot of work to do. So I don't think it's simple, but I think, you know, embracing the renewable energy revolution, embracing the storage revolution that has to come with it is important. When it comes to cooking, it is about cleaner fuels for cooking. That's um, We need to have breakthroughs, I think, in solar technology. But again, if you can build clean, uh, you know, decentralized uh, electricity systems from renewable energy and hook cooking up to that, then that's going to work. But it's also, uh, you know, in some cities in the world right now, and towns and growing towns, um, getting them access to LPG over, um, you know, animal dung and charcoal and wood is going to be better for their health in the short run. So, so the key challenge uh, seems to be financing energy development, or one of the key challenges. What frameworks exist today to supply global energy finance, and, and what are the main sources of funding? Well, so the billion people who don't have access to electricity are mainly situated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And 16 of the 20 countries with the largest energy access gap are in Sub-Saharan Africa. So one of the dynamics here is one of making sure that Africa doesn't get left behind. Um, if we look at the financing um, into the energy sector, then uh, in developing countries, this has been heavily dominated by uh, multilateral development banks and increasingly now in recent years by China and other big lenders. Um, most sub-Saharan African countries don't invest anything like the amount of their GDP into their own infrastructure, including their energy infrastructure, that would really be, you know, behooven of them um, in, in, a, in a moment of sort of uptick in investment. And in fact, the Africa Union is talking about the need for African countries to invest 5% of their GDP in their, sort of, in their infrastructure. And most don't 
don't come close to that at the moment. So there is a domestic investment imperative. And of course, most countries now, even poorer countries in sub-Saharan Africa, have domestic development banks, have domestic investment funds and others. So there's a, there is a, there, it's not that these countries are without resources that could be invested. But then when we look at development finance and private finance, obviously private finance wants to see good investment climates, wants to see good enabling environments and good regulatory environments, and wants to know that those regulatory environments are not going to be quixotic and you know, there's not going to be regulatory change. Mm-hmm. And the development finance, frankly, uh, is you know has made. There's been extraordinary numbers of pledges made in the last uh, five, six years, in particular. But what we see at Sustainable Energy for All, where we track this financial flow, is that it's not necessarily moving very fast. So it may have been pledged, but it's not committed and it's not dispersing. And in particular, it's not dispersing into the countries where the energy access gap is the largest which may be difficult countries to invest in anyway, um, but it's also not dispersing into decentralised energy access solutions. So it's not, it's not reaching mini-grids, micro-grids, other off-grid solutions, which we know will be a very important first, second, third step for the people who don't have access, which you see many of whom are actually living in rural areas or in secondary towns uh, outside of where the grid reaches at the moment. So uh, we have a financial flow problem. We also have a what is it going to finance problem. And then I think we have a, a problem of sort of business as usual in development finance at a time when the crisis of getting people access to electricity means that we shouldn't be operating in a business as usual way. Well, I want to take that, that point that you just made a minute ago uh, one step further. Your organization's research so shows that even where there is adequate energy finance, that finance may not be directed toward creating basic access to electricity for households. Mm-hmm. For example, a recent report found that only 28% of the $30 billion directed to energy access in 2017 actually went to providing access to residential customers. The rest went to providing access to industry and institutions. That, that sounds like that's something that you're, you're concerned about. Yeah, because, well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you sit, so you put yourself in the shoes of a minister or shoes of a senior civil servant, right? And you're sitting in the capital and you need to get power to um, the business and the industry, you know, normally, you know, in an industrial centre or around your capital city. That's where the, you know, the large concentration of the population is. Those are the ones who vote often, you know, hopefully for you. And so you do need to make sure that you are meeting those needs. But if we're going to close the energy access gap, we are going to have to find ways to get electricity beyond the power lines and below the power lines as they exist today. And the old theory of change was, you know, we build more independent power plants, uh, we, you know, extend the transmission lines, all at great cost, and the the new installed capacity has in the past mainly been fossil fuel. And what we're saying is that there is a revolution in renewable energy which is bringing the price down you know, very to, to a point where it is um, applicable in these countries. Uh, storage solutions are beginning to be available and certainly development finance is focused uh, on being able to make them available and that we can deliver renewable energy in decentralised ways from solar home systems to microgrids to mini-grids. Now, can they compete economically with a heavily subsidised supply of electricity through the grid, however far the grid does or doesn't reach at the moment? No, because most of the public policy and most of the subsidies applied into the grid at the moment. 
Um, but what we see is when countries start to levelise out their regulatory framework, embracing the off-grid option as well as the grid, that the energy access gap starts to close quite quickly. Look at Kenya, look at Bangladesh uh, uh, as two examples. And so we would like to see more attention paid to an integrated approach using both off-grid and grid in order to meet your energy access goals. I just want to be clear on what that the, the magnitude of that energy finance gap is. Uh, again, your organization has identified that is currently about $30 billion is going into finance and about $54 billion is actually what's needed. Um, there was a, a little detail that I saw that really caught my attention. The amount of money needed for uh, clean cooking is actually rather small. It's about $4 billion globally. Uh, the most recent numbers for the actual investment was about $30 million and that was falling. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the numbers that we're able to trace are infant- I mean, ridiculously small compared to um, A, what's needed, but B, to the size of the challenge. Um, and I think that those numbers uh, also reflect how difficult it is to track uh, what's being spent on cooking. So there may be a cooking component of a bigger development uh, project in a multilateral development bank, for example, but we can't track it and you can't find it. Well, I mean, if we can't track it and find it, that means that the people who are measuring the success of the programme are also not tracking it and, and measuring success. So even if that number, that 30 million number, is a bit soft... Uh, it reveals that this isn't a priority and we're not putting the kind of emphasis that we should on clean cooking solutions within the development finance community. Um, why is cooking so um, underappreciated um, as, as a critical issue? Despite, you know, like 12 years of concentrated advocacy and, and really very, very important work that's been done by those in this space. I think it's um, it's a silent issue. Most of the people whose labour goes into going and fetching the, the wood, the charcoal, the biomass, most people whose time is spent cooking are women. Their contribution within the economy is not measured or uh, considered important. And so it's a kind of silent sleeper issue. Um what we see is that when politicians understand the importance of the issue for uh, livelihoods, uh, who are worried about the figures coming out from WHO, about how many people are ill and dying from indoor air pollution, when we see that they see that this is affecting sort of rural economy productivity. So, for example, Prime Minister Modi or Peña Nieto in Mexico uh, previously, they have said, OK, we want to solve this problem. And they've been able to make quite substantial inroads to it. So it's a neglected issue. It's not an unsolvable issue. SC for All doesn't actively solicit development finance. It works, I guess, with other organizations to, to raise that finance. Can you tell me a little bit more about the specific role in raising finance and, and what is the value proposition that you communicate to encourage Mm-hmm. and accelerate investment. Yes, yeah, so you're right. So Sustainable Energy for All is just a, is a platform and our job is to lift up everybody else so that everybody else is excellent at what they do. And if everybody else was excellent at what they do, we think that we can you know, achieve the sustainable development goal. Uh, so we're not operational. We're not raising money ourselves to invest or to actually run projects or to actually build businesses. Um, our value, well, I mean, we've spent a lot of the last four years basically working out what is the critical path because our worst fear is that we wake up in 2030 and everybody will have been really busy and there will be a lot of taxpayers' dollars 
you know, mobilised and spent in different programmes and we, you know, we won't have achieved the goal. Um, and so we've spent a lot of time working out, well, you know, what is this, you know, what do we have to do in order to achieve the goal? So, for example, when we started out about four years ago, um, we didn't know so much about who the billion people were who didn't have access. So where were they geographically? Who were they? And what access do they actually need? I mean, it's you've, the need of a small business owner in the periphery of Addis Ababa who has access to electricity, maybe not very affordably, but it's intermittent. It goes out a lot, right? That That's one thing that has to be attacked. And how you solve that is different from the woman who's... Uh, alone. Her husband has moved to the city. She's in Burkina Faso in a village. She's got four kids. She has a different need and she's got a different capacity to pay for that. Um, and so we try to uh, work with the community to build up an understanding of those billion people. And there is now an agreement on a sort of tiering of tier one, tier two, three, four, five. And we can actually sort of talk about what uh, what tier people are at and what kind of electricity needs that they have. And then you can start looking at, well, well how would you finance that? So for the poorest of the poor, the, the woman living in a slum, um, with no access, no income earning capacity at the moment, she's going to have to get bundled into some kind of safety net. Her ability to have access to lighting, at least, you know, uh, clean fuel for cooking, uh, enough electricity to charge her cell phone and maybe a fan, etc. That's going to have to be bundled into some other kind of safety net package. You know, and then you, she could access to microfinance and to micro savings and perhaps start to build up her energy consuming capacity. You know, that's one way of doing it, building, bringing the private sector in and letting the private sector models for, you know, solar home systems that have grown so rapidly in East Africa, etc. That's a different solution for a different group of people. So we've been really trying to sort of um, build up a taxonomy of, of, you know, what works where and what would you do and how much will it cost? And then what kind of financing do you need? You know, throwing um, development finance in dollars, uh, you know, into local banks doesn't work because people need access to local currency financing at an affordable uh, rate. And we still haven't solved that problem in development finance. And so our job is to sort of clear our throats and say, everybody, could we focus, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... You mentioned the role of women, and women are often described as, as some of the most vulnerable when it comes to the lack of, of energy access and are also considered key to enacting solutions. Can you, can you go a little bit further on that? You know, I come from a reasonably small village originally. If you walked into that village when I was a kid and you only asked the men, you know, what's wrong with the village, what's right with the village, what does the village need, blah, 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 you'd have got one set of answers. If you'd gone and then asked the women, you would have a completely different set of answers, I, I think, right? And so it's the same is true in development. Um, and so, it, you know, with the extraordinary rates of, of internal migration that we see in the developing world, across Asia and Africa in particular, where uh, young men are moving to the cities for jobs, are moving to towns to jobs, you've got a rural population which is predominantly women and children, uh, and so those women are extremely vulnerable. They need to have access to uh, energy services, water services, need to have access to productive farm economy, etc. Um, 
But they're also incredible women entrepreneurs in, in the energy space and some of the most effective advocates and some of the most exciting business models are being run by women. So I think about Frontier Energy in Jaipur. I think of Solar Sister across West Africa. You know, these are women taking their understanding of how community works, um, how the countryside works, how small businesses work. They've got long histories in micro savings, etc. And they are building business models around renewable energy and uh, that some of what they're doing is the most exciting um, and so women are not just the victims of all of this they're actually the entrepreneurs that have the solutions the country that has the largest absolute number of people who have a- lack of access to electricity is India mm-hmm. and last fall uh, Piyush Goyal who's India's minister for railways and coal and a past minister for a portfolio that included renewable energy appeared on this podcast to talk about India's efforts to spread access to electricity. He was very blunt that coal power will remain a significant portion of India's energy mix, even as India strives to adopt more clean energy. And they have quite ambitious goals, 175 gigawatts of clean generation by 2022. Uh, At the same time, the IEA projects that coal use worldwide in the year 2040, 20 years from now, will be about the same as it is today. So I want to ask you this very fundamental question that I know is is a difficult one. Uh, Is the goal of universal energy access compatible with a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, particularly given the tight frame that you've set to achieve both? Well, I didn't set the time frame. Uh, The government of India and China and the United States and Europe and all other 196 countries, the UN set the goals, right? So Mm -hmm. my job is to hold up a mirror and say, this is what you promised yourselves. Let me help you deliver it. Um, The second point, I think, around India is that India is going to have... Uh, a long tail in in fossil fuels, including coal. And what it is trying to do is escape from that uh, because of of the economics, I think, of renewable energy, because of the air quality problems that they have, um, that they need to resolve, and they're not going to resolve that by burning more coal than they have to. And thirdly, there's a structural issue around their coal industry, which is that the coal is held that the 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 debt of the coal companies is is held by public banks right the state banks um and you know if you think about stranded assets and you think about what might happen to those coal assets that's going to come back to the public person so that you know indian economists and the indian government are working very hard on stabilizing the grid putting as much renewable energy as they possibly can in there Piyush goyal is electrifying the whole railway system, very successfully at the moment in India, um, because they they have to have that clean energy future and they have to be mm-hmm. positioned for that. So I think that you know you can't switch off the coal tomorrow, but how you, how quickly you phase out is a race against time, because of air quality, because of carbon emissions, and because of economic competitiveness. The final thing I'd say is you quoted IEA. IEA has been wrong about the uh, proportion of renewable energy and the energy mix in the world energy outlook for at least 17 years. And at the moment, there is a very considerable public debate uh, about the fact that IEA has a responsibility to um, open up its models and use uh, and, and be open source so that we can all see what assumptions it's making 
um, if its if its projections are being used by countries around the world as a sort of definitive data set. And so if the WEO says, well, coal is going to be 40% of the energy mix by 2040, which most other people don't think is true, and you're a minister, you'll say, well, if IEA says it's going to be that part of the mix, then I'm going to have to plan accordingly, right? So IEA doesn't make people use its data in a certain way, but its data is being used in that way. And I think that's where the push for transparency for IEA models is coming from. We'd also like them to be a little bit more accurate. They've been wrong on renewable energy and they're also wrong on the rate of electric vehicle take-up as well. Well, You uh, were a signatory to a recent letter that Mm -hmm. was delivered to... Uh, the, to Fatih Birol, saying that they, they need to refocus their scenarios to make the more ambitious scenarios in the world energy outlook more of the central scenarios. And I think the idea is there that would influence people on what is possible and, and spur new investment. Yeah, that was a, so that was a, a sort of a second point, right? Uh, a second issue, which is that, um, again, IEA uh, would like to be the global data source on energy, which I have no quibble with. But then if you're going to do that, then there's an added responsibility. And the point here was that um, the international community, through the Paris Agreement, has agreed on two degree, you know, well below two degrees as the scenario, as, as where we need to be. Right. Uh, recent science has come out and said, actually, that's not going to work. We need, we're going to need to be at one point five. And so uh, the IEA came out with a sustainable development scenario. It's a scenario, what's called a scenario. And that scenario is for two degrees. Again, it's not open source, so we can't really pull it apart and see what, how, what they assume and how they get there. But what we've said is that if the, if the operational framework now for decision-making has to be 1.5, then the IEA needs to have a scenario for 1.5, and it can't use the two-degrees scenario as a, as a sustainable development one because science has now said that's not a sustainable development. You'll be leading efforts around affordable and clean energy at the upcoming UN Climate Summit uh, mm-hmm. that will be taking place this September in New York City. What happens at these summits and, and what concrete achievements will you be aiming for? So the Secretary General, when he called for the summit, was mindful that while the Paris Agreement negotiations go on through the committees of the parties, political leaders have to be engaged um, given the crisis, of the emergency that climate change is. And so he wanted a way to bring heads of state together to make sure that they were focused on the fact that it's their job, right? It's not something they can delegate down to their environment ministers or climate negotiators. And he also was cognizant of the fact that after the IP, the IPCC report, you know, the we, 1.5 degree, the 1. 5 degree mm-hmm. report, which came out in October 2018, we really, we really do not have time. And so what he's done is ask a number of different countries to lead a number of different tracks. For energy, he's asked Denmark to lead and Ethiopia has joined them. And there's a small coalition of countries around Ethiopia and Denmark. Uh, my job is to support them and to help the Secretary General on the energy track. And what we're looking for is what are the material um, uh, accelerating uh agreements or um, proposals that could help countries implement their energy transitions more quickly and smoothly. It's not as it were with some of the summits before the Paris Agreement in 2015 where we were trying to sort of rally everybody around and we needed lots of family photos of business leaders saying we'll do this and we'll do that. 
we need all of that, but it's really about countries who have made commitments in their nationally determined contributions, which are the building blocks of the Paris Agreement. These are the nationally agreed plans. These will have to be ratcheted up under the Paris mechanism. It's really like how do you help countries who committed to you know, 100% renewables or to a massive uptake in clean energy within the next five years and they're behind, what do we do to help them speed up? So, for example, um, is there a way to channel financing to those that have got really aggressive equipments about clean energy? If people are divesting from coal and we've got seven Southeast Asian countries where coal is a very, very big part of what they're planning to build over the next five to six years, Divesting from coal is one thing, but is the financing and the technical assistance in place to fund the alternative? If not, can we do something about that? Shipping, part of a very, very long, slow, complicated negotiation at the International Maritime Organization. Is there a coalition of the countries that build the big ships, the ports that fuel the big ships, and the people who put their stuff on those big ships? Is there a coalition that could speed up action around reducing emissions and shipping? So these are some of the things we're looking at, and um, hopefully we'll have a suite of them to bring to the summit. I suppose you'll be talking with government leaders, with private industry, across the board? Yeah, so we're working... Uh, we're working with governments that are sort of really committed to sort of, you know, celebrate a leadership group, but by having them go further and then work out what is the diplomatic intervention with those who are, you know, laggards. How do we get the oil and gas industry, leaders of whom are making very important commitments, but how do we get them to be able to pull nationally owned companies, oil companies in some of the developing countries? How do we get them to move more quickly? Um, there's promises made about reducing methane, for example, in the oil and gas industry, but also through gas flaring, but also under the Montreal Protocol. But, you know, if you look at methane in the gas industry, most of the emissions are coming from Iran, Iraq and Russia. And those companies and those countries are not in the centre of all of the conversations that normally happen. So is there outreach there? Most big container ships are built either by China, Japan or Korea today. It's a very concentrated industry. Could those three countries lead a revolution in how we build those boats in future? So these are the. this is where the statecraft of the UN and the private sector you know, ability to see around corners comes together. Do you expect leaders to, to commit to action? Anything new? The Secretary General does. As he said, you know, don't come with speeches, come with plans. Very good. Rachel, thanks for talking. No, thank you. This has been great fun. Today's guest has been Rachel Kite, Chief Executive Officer and Special Representative of the UN Secretary General for Sustainable Energy for All and a co-chair of UN Energy. You can find more episodes of Energy Policy Now, including the interview I mentioned with Indian Energy Minister Piyush Goyal, on iTunes and the Climate Center's website. Our address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And for updates on research and events from the Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.